Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm here with my co-founder on Agenda Media, Tyler Lambert. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. So on today's agenda, quotas in the coalition, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's new cabinet, kids in isolation, what mothers are missing from missing out on superannuation and much more. Thank you for listening. Tala, how are you really today? I, <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit worse for wear, Ange. I'm actually, we're, I'm currently recording this in bed, which is pretty amazing that I can do that. Like I, I actually don't, I'm not even ashamed to say it. I think <laughs> it's great that that's where we've gotten to. <laughs> yeah, it's true, true progress for the future of work, I think. <laughs> I've published our newsletter in bed. I've written a story in bed. I've just had a really productive day so far in bed. It's great. Well done. Well done. I'm <laughs> sitting on top of the bed. The bed has been made. It's working. I've actually been back in our office, which is great. And we work with a couple of different businesses. So that's been pretty special to see them this week and everybody kind of sharing their own stories of the last four months of lockdown. But it is sort of a, a slow kind of return to some semblance of normality. So that has been welcome. Yeah, I feel like you've got more of a swing in your step this week. Okay, good to know. <laughs> I'm not this miserable, frustrated. <laughs> no, it's, hell it's, been. it's so nice yeah. though that people are returning to offices and that things are getting back to some kind of normality. Everyone has been pretty desperate for it. Well, I have been speaking with Christina Zuika this week, who did write an excellent piece for us looking at a few things that were revealed in Senate estimates, which we might touch on shortly. But one thing that remarking on was this idea that it's not like you just kind of return to normal. It's not like you just suddenly jolt back into place and everything is as it was. If anything, I think especially if you've got young kids, as a parent, it feels like you're sort of working on trying to address some of maybe the damage that may have been occurred through this period, damage to their mental health or damage to their education. I know we feel a sense to really be focusing on catching up on a few things. We're also not using school care options. We're not really doing extracurricular activities that involve mixing with kids from other schools or anything. We're trying to keep everything outdoors which is, you know, fun because we are still spending a lot of time outdoors. But at the same time, it just feels like we're still in a bit of a holding pattern, I think, for the next few months until we figure out what next. And it's a different experience for different parents. But sadly, it is a bit of an additional load that I think a lot of women particularly will be carrying through this period and over Christmas and into the next year. Yeah. So we'll touch on a bit more of that because we did want to talk about kids in isolation. But first, let's talk about wins. Tala, give us a win. Let's go with Justin Trudeau. Uh Oh, really? You're going to give me my win? Is that just because you love Justin Trudeau? <laughs> Sorry, that was... <laughs> go, with... <laughs> go with whatever you want. I feel like I did mention Justin Trudeau in the opener. You wrote the story, so I figured that you would be the expert to share us about his new cabinet. You know, it was back in 2015 that Justin Trudeau actually made the point that he was having a 50-50 cabinet because it's 2015 and he's kind of kept true to that. It's continued and we've seen lots of interesting appointments since then. No, it is really encouraging to see that he hasn't backed down from that position at all. That that really is, I think, his kind of deep ideology that, that we need to be diverse, we need to be gender equal, and certainly his cabinet reflects that. And so in his latest cabinet reshuffle that comes off the back of the Liberal government's minority election win in September, 
he has appointed Melanie Jolie as foreign minister and Anita Anand as defence minister. And as you said, the cabinet still remains gender balanced and it has done since his party was first elected in 2015. He has had a few kind of hiccups along the way and, and certainly I think some of the gloss that was around Justin Trudeau in those very early days of him being Prime Minister is probably not quite there anymore. But, you know, nonetheless, they have formed government. And following the announcement of these new appointments, he said that Canadians were expecting big things to be done by Parliament and by this government. My win, so still on politics, and I think that political leadership very much is the the topic of the week, especially as we go to COP26 starting next week. But I wanted to touch on, and this happened last week, it was the Girls Take Over Parliament New South Wales virtual event, which was held on International Day of the Girl Child. Um, And it was really planned to try and, um, you know, encourage girls and young women to start getting involved in community leadership. And it basically then did link them with female politicians who could share their own experiences of the political process. And I see that Gabrielle Upton has, we've just published a piece from her on this today. And she notes the fact that, you know, the loss of former Premier Gladys Berejiklian, the impact that has, and I know that people have mixed feelings about that, but she talks about the fact that, you know, because there are so few women in those sorts of positions that seeing a woman like that go, it just creates such a, a void. And, and I think that's why it can be hard to sort of understand and to grasp and to sort of deal with. And then you see the replacement, and it's kind of more of the same of what was there like, you know, 10 years ago. So it is hard to watch. But the more... years ago in the case of Heritage. <laughs> the, the more we can see and engage young women in the power they have in community leadership, particularly high school students, who, as Gabrielle notes in this piece, you know, they, they turned up to this despite everything that was going on post-lockdown, their busy curriculum, trying to catch up on exams and things like that. They turned up, they participated in the mentoring sessions, they got involved, they asked the questions, they were able to talk directly with MPs. I think that was a win and good to see once again, which might lead us to a bit of a discussion that we just wanted to share on Keith Pitt. Yeah. So I talked about the coalition kind of further expanding on quotas as a topic for today. So, and congratulations, Keith Pitt. He becomes the fifth national basically to get a cabinet position as a result of a quota. He returns to cabinet. He previously got demoted from that a year or so ago. Basically, he returns to cabinet as a result of the nationals uh, signing off on the net zero 2050 target that the Morrison government has announced, which the Morrison government has then gone on and revealed a plan that basically kind of rehashed other stuff that was already in the mix and kind of called it a plan. Um, But, you know, to compensate for whatever it is, I don't know, agreeing to sign off on this because Keith Pitt is a massive advocate for coal. He actually (laughs) attempted to suggest that... um, taxpayers should fund hundreds of billions of dollars in loans for the coal industry to make up for the fact that banks are no longer willing to fund new coal-fired plants and things like that. So he suggested that oh, clearly that the taxpayers should step in and do that. But, you know, he, he signed off on this. He had told Fran Kelly last week that the climate's always been changing and there's not an iota of difference that Australia could make Mm. on that, which, um, 
you know, I, I, I did like suggest isn't true because we've seen how the difference that the Paris commitments have been able to make in terms of slowing what was originally a four degree warming, we've at least kind of made some impact on that. I won't say we as in Australia, we'll say in terms of international agreements elsewhere. So this stuff actually matters and it can make a difference. But I know we spoke about Keith Pitt last week. We spoke about Barnaby Joyce last week, who had said that his party won't be held hostage over climate action. But yeah, I just wanted to highlight this one again, noting that there we go for, you know, the Liberals and the Nationals being so staunchly against quotas. Once again, it's interesting to see how uh, happy they are to negotiate quota positions into getting the agreements that they need. Yeah. It's a real dodgy one, isn't it? Um, he gets a pay rise as well. So well done. Yeah, him. Yeah. He's really won out of this. I think he gets like another $30,000 or something. And, yeah, there's just been a lot of backroom wheeling and dealing and the result of that is is Keith Pitt in a cabinet position who, as you've just mentioned, has the most backward views about the future of Australia and, you know, our response to climate change. So mm. I hope Morrison faces that scrutiny in Glasgow and that pressure continues to ramp up because I think that it is it is having an impact when that kind of pressure that global pressure is on him he he does tend to act a little bit more so hopefully that that continues I hope so too I mean I know that it feels like Scott Morrison is kind of pushing to uh even suggest that we've got plans around 2030 he's clearly setting himself up to not look like a total outlier amongst his uh, international peers when he gets there because it is going to be extremely awkward and I can say there's a lot of international media talking about Scott Morrison at the moment and how unwilling he is to really make the moves that are needed here. Yeah. But um, I, mean, I note that it's not, even if you don't care about, you know, the environmental devastation and we need to care about what Australia might miss out on if we just continue to try and uh, tread our own path on this. And the Australia Institute highlighted uh, modelling from Deloitte Access Economics this week that found that reducing emissions by 46% by 2030 would lead to a $210 billion economic benefit. And it's like we don't get to have that discussion about the positives here and opportunities and the green jobs and everything that exists in renewable energy. So I hope we can turn the conversation now. Yeah, I want to make one final point there. Sorry, I know that I'm banging on about this, but the United Nations identified a leadership gap this week that is seeing the world on track as they put it to a climate catastrophe and you just can't help but look at that gap and think that first of all it's like clearly telling in Australia's case but that leadership gap is linked to so many other leadership gaps on the international stage as well and most notably the gender gap there and we just simply do not have enough women in heads of state or um, head of country positions. You know, as of September 2021, there were 26 women serving as heads of state and or heads of government in 24 countries. So at that current rate, gender equality in those positions of power will not be reached for another 130 years. Mm-hmm. Only 21% of government ministers are female and only 14, 14 countries have achieved 50% or more of women in cabinet. So... We know that Canada is one of those. We discussed Justin Trudeau there. So clearly there is a massive gap in leadership and clearly this is the ultimate outcome of it. Yep. This, we've 
wanted to also just touch on a bit of an issue that's impacting, oh, not really a bit of an issue, a major issue that's impacting uh, parents across Victoria and New South Wales at the moment, uh, particularly parents of young children. And it comes as research has been published today, finding that soon enough, 40% of Australia's unvaccinated population will be in kids under five. And this research published across the conversation, which I believe will also share across women's agenda, basically says that early childhood education will be the next COVID frontline. So they say this off the idea, which I think many of us are hoping, that for five to 11-year-olds, they will soon be able to access the vaccine. I think that would take a few months. But what we're really finding is, like, if you have a child in childcare, I'm sure you're thinking about these issues. And if you have had to do a stint in quarantine or in isolation due to a child in childcare or a child in school becoming a close contact of somebody, which means that your entire family needs to isolate together for 14 days, regardless of whether or not you're vaccinated, this is very much on your agenda. This research basically shows that these childcare centres are also at risk of becoming major transmission locations. So clearly this is a concern for kids um, in these centres, but also for educators. I think it's also a concern for the viability and the sustainability for the sector once Mm. again as well, that it's going through, um, looks set to go through another kind of emergency period there. So that's one side of it. The next side of it is to schools, which is close to me because so we sent our kindergarten, our five-year-old back to school. He's now two weeks in. On day five, the school closed. There was a positive case. I felt sick about this because it had only been 13 or so days since our last period of quarantine and we just weren't ready to go through that again. We got lucky in this case. Half the year had to quarantine, which I think is around 70 families, and half the year did not and were not even considered casual contacts. And I think that's a credit to this school that they were able to really do some great separation there. But it's been, you know, really hard for those kids who five days into school, they've suddenly been taken back out of school and then really hard for their siblings, many of whom were due to start school the next week, couldn't start school. And obviously for their parents who would find it, you know, even extra hard to work when you're literally stuck in your home, in your apartment, in your, maybe if you have a backyard, maybe you can get out a little bit, but for a lot of people, they can't. So a really tough situation. And I know that from speaking with a lot of parents about this and seeing some media reports on it, I'd like to see a little bit more in the media on this, but people sort of are living in a bit of a heightened state of anxiety. Even I spoke to somebody yesterday who mentioned that they may take their kids out of school. People are saying they won't send their kids back to school after this second stint of quarantine, but also that they might take their kids out of school, say two weeks earlier, just to avoid, you know, a horror situation of needing to quarantine over Christmas day, because you got unlucky on the classroom that you're in at school. What do you make of this, Tyler? I think it's an under-examined part of this equation in that, you know, as you said, children up to four years old make up 40% of Australia's unvaccinated population. And while they're free to go to daycare now, we know that those rates are likely to escalate pretty profoundly, like through those centres, and, like, I think that there is mass anxiety for parents across the board. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I, I think that they will kind of put, well, you'd like to think that they're going to be putting processes in place for kind of quicker testing to make sure mm-hmm. that those risks of ongoing quarantine, as you mentioned, aren't there. 
But I think we do need to look more closely and more deeply into the impacts on mental health for kids. And in doing so, we need to make sure that policies upcoming are aligned with that and understand that, take that into consideration. I, I'm not sure. I feel like that's a little bit of a missing puzzle piece at the moment. And I get that it's a tricky one because we're trying to protect the physical well-being of people. But I think that there are many other impacts of this pandemic and the fallout from that is going to be quite long lasting. So, yeah, yeah. I think especially at this point in time when people are starting to feel some semblance of normality, I guess that that's a, an emotional roller coaster that people just don't need to be on right now. And I think it will have some really negative consequences if we don't do something better. I don't know what the answers are either. I know that the um, rapid antigen testing is coming and we've got reports that they're going to be available in Woolworths and Coles. And that seems amazing, but we don't know what that would mean in this context and how you prove these tests. I'm not sure. That will hopefully come, but I just a bit more communication, a little bit more planning around what's involved here. I think this is particularly important for the childcare sector, which really is the federal government's responsibility to think about how they're going to ensure the sustainability of this sector, because I think people will start to just take their kids out of childcare again. But I just also want us to think about the impact. And this is a hard thing to say, because I know obviously the impacts of, of getting COVID and COVID spreading can be so much worse, but the impact of children experiencing multiple stints of quarantine one period is okay I mean I I get that that's going to happen but the idea of it happening over and over again I just can't that's not a life for children and it makes me feel kind of physically sick to think about people in our local community here who are literally doing their second stint of this for the second time in like five weeks it's a lot for these kids who had just gone back to school. There were balloons all over the fence. There's bubbles being blown. Everyone was so excited and they're going through this again. So, yeah, like I say, not completely sure the answer, but I think that definitely something that we want to see more on. I mean, I'm sure it must be a lot more acute in Victoria at the moment where the cases are higher, but this is going to impact the entire country soon enough. We're going to move on to our new FinHack segment now, which is supported by Superhero. And Superhero has been supporting the Women's Agenda podcast for the last few weeks, allowing us to share some really great content and stories and ideas in the financial space, which is is great. And the story we want to look at this week around women who are missing out on super during parental leave and the damaging effects of that. And Madeline notes in this piece, that nearly 500,000 mums in New South Wales have gone without superannuation payments during their time on parental leave over the past 10 years. And I guess the impact of that has left a lot of women with considerable gaps in their retirement savings. And that's exactly what this new analysis from Industries to Super Australia has shown. And they've actually noted that it's to the amount of 522 million in superannuation contributions because the Commonwealth Parental Leave Scheme doesn't pay super as part of it. Mm. It's an interesting one. I mean, we cover this story a lot on Women's Agenda, but I do think that we need some kind of Commonwealth policy in place to better protect women who we know are at a complete risk of retiring below the poverty line and having 
considerable kind of financial hardship throughout their lives. Yeah, because all this accumulates. If you miss those superannuation contributions during that, that period, it accumulates to the point of why women uh, retire with so much less superannuation than men. And I think we need a circuit breaker definitely here. And it's great to see the employers now actually paying superannuation on top of paid parental leave because paid parental leave actually, it really is the only form of leave that doesn't actually get paid superannuation on top of it. Like if you go on a holiday, if you take holiday pay, if you have sick leave, uh, you typically get paid superannuation while taking that leave. But for whatever reason, we don't on paid parental leave. And I mean, I saw a great idea last week which had actually been proposed by the NT government in negotiations with the unions there, which, um, and these negotiations, I believe, did ultimately fall through. But one idea that was proposed was that they would pay double the amount of superannuation to women taking parental leave to try and make up for some of this gap. But Tala, you have a tip. Take us to the tip that... um, it shouldn't be our responsibility to fix this. We do want to see things happening at the Commonwealth level and at the employer level. But in the meantime, what's one of the best things that we can do for superannuation? It seems pretty kind of trivial and obvious, I guess you'd say. But if you kind of like me have had multiple jobs, then there's every chance that you've accrued a few super accounts over your time. And if that's the case, then you're likely being charged for each of those funds that you're a part of for services that you're probably not using. And I think there's a lot of hesitancy and reluctance around people consolidating their super. I know I've been hammering on to my partner to do it for months now. And his reluctance, I think, stems from the fact that he thinks it's a really like monumental task. But actually, that's one of the things that the government has made a lot more seamless in recent years. It's a really easy process to consolidate your super. So you essentially log in to the ATO online services through MyGov and that you can actually keep track of your super there and and view the super accounts held for you um, as well as the super that you've already accrued. And then really consolidating that into your preferred super account is as simple as a few buttons. So really look into the funds that you might have there look into, we talked about this a little bit last week in the the context of investing, but it's the same thing with super funds because they have different portfolios and and the way that your money's invested and, and what you're being charged for. So do a little bit of due diligence there, research what those funds are, and then decide on the one that you want. But yeah, the process of putting it all into one fund is actually very, very simple now. And while you're navigating the platform that I just mentioned, you can check that your employer is paying the right amount of super each week as well. And there's a tool there called the Estimate My Super tool, which will alert you to any shortfalls. Uh, And there's an easy reporting mechanism there for you to follow as well. Thank you again to Superhero for supporting this feature and bringing us this week's FinHack. You can learn more about your options at superhero.com.au or download the Superhero app today. Hey, so before we close up, I'm going to share a teaser of a special podcast series that we have just launched, which I'm really excited about because basically I've been working on it and I've done uh, heaps of interviews around it and I just find this area fascinating and I've been so lucky to learn so much at the same time. So it's all about women's health and we're really looking at how women's health has been sidelined historically, how it continues to be sidelined now, how women's 
pain and various symptoms, how often they're ignored, even now, even when women go to GPs now. And we're looking at some of the innovation and the advocacy and some of the exciting stuff that's also happening in this space. So it is editorially independent, but it's made possible thanks to the support of Organon, which is a female pharmaceutical company that's just launched in Australia. So I'm going to share that teaser now. It wasn't so long ago that medical research trials simply didn't include women. Not just that. The past few decades, we've seen health-related investment and biomedical innovations prioritising areas like erectile dysfunction and hair loss over other areas like endometriosis, heart disease in women and dementia, which is the leading cause of death among women in Australia. We've had generations of women with pain ignored by doctors, their chronic illnesses overlooked for decades, instead often being diagnosed as just being stressed or overweight, or even, and this wasn't so long ago, as being hysterical. Then there are the continued social expectations that value physical appearance over how well a person actually is. So how did it get to this and what is being done about it? All right, so that's the Women's Health Project. So yes, go and check it out on iTunes or Spotify. We've just published the first episode and the next episode will be out next Tuesday. So finally, have you got a recommendation, Tyler? I've just picked up Leanne Moriarty's new book, Apples Never Fall. Right. I am making my way quite painfully slowly through that because I'm the slowest reader in the history of the planet, um, even when it's a really nice, easy read. But I do love Leanne Moriarty. I love her voice and I have it on good authority that this is one of her better reads. So I am excited. Great. Okay. Uh, well, last night, I mean, I was up until maybe 2 a.m. watching Succession, so that's my recommendation. I held off for years watching this for no reason, and then I thought I'd finally start with season one because season three just launched and everybody's talking about it and it's just being promoted everywhere and I just had to know. I love it. <laughs> the characters are so good. I still don't know if I like them or I hate them. Sometimes it's a little bit of both, which is just such a weird feeling. And um, there's a whole idea, obviously, that it's been modelled off the Murdoch family. And I recently heard this awesome little tidbit that at Rupert Murdoch's recent 90th birthday, they actually played the the theme song to Succession. And so I can't get that theme song out of my head and I keep picturing Rupert Murdoch rocking up to this party and everyone having this theme theme song in the background, which just (laughs) makes me want to be there and actually know what happened but anyway, <laughs> I'm so happy that I started later I don't have to wait for the season three episode one to start so that is my recommendation there you go all right well thank you for listening to the women's agenda podcast a reminder that you can access all the stories that we discussed in some shape and form on our website where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter Please go and check out our other podcasts, Women's Health Project, as well as The Leadership Lessons, hosted by Shirley Chowdhury, featuring interviews with female leaders on how to lead for the decade ahead. Thank you for listening.